Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Oh boy, Wizard and the Bruiser is going back out on the road with page seven. That's right, round two of Release the Butthole Cut Tour. Holton, when's that happening? June 21st will be in Portland, Oregon. June 22nd, Tacoma, Washington. July 11th, Oklahoma City. July 12th, Kansas City. July 13th will be in St. Louis, Missouri. Where can we get tickets, Jake? Lastpodcastnetwork.com. Get your tickets at lastpodcastnetwork.com. It is me, your warrior class bruiser, Hunter McNeely. Welcome to Diablo, Spanish for the Diablo. That's right, a Chris Farley reference right at the beginning. What do you got for me, Jake? Ah, hello there. It's me, Deckard Kane, not Sean Connery. Different, <laughs> different, vaguely Scottish old man. Stay a while and listen to this tale of dungeoneering uh, development crunch. Nah, I gotta go smash some. I don't care about it at all. My gush, 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 gush. Now, the thing, the difference between a primeval and a lesser evil, this is very <laughs> important. I'm glad you're paying attention. Uh, now, the, this is before the great Where's conflict. Where's the auction shop? I want to go to the auction shop. No, I'm auction. telling you about the Sin War and during which Lilith, uh, the Nephilim, this is all very, why are you just, uh, fine, here, take a take a new halberd, all right? Is that what <laughs> yeah, you wanted? Yeah, fuck yeah, dude. It's Hell a yeah. new halberd. You want to buy it off me for $3? Yeah, sure. Real dollars? I just I just gave it to you, but I'll buy it. From you. <laughs> <laughs> That'll to our cost ep- you eighty thousand dollars of uh, eternal orbs, oh, so cool. that you can get a uh, rune. Uh, crest that'll give you a gem that you can socket inside other gems. This is very important. I think those also get my lady a rack uh, implant, so I'm gonna go for that. <laughs> listen, no or listen, no orbs are eternal, Holden. Time comes for <laughs> all those. At some point, orbs. they'll burst and need to get rushed in for emergency surgery. They're very, wow. very, yeah, wow. silicon we went orbs. From, we went from deep lore <laughs> to titties in record time. There you uh, go. Welcome. That's how I do. It's my magic. It's my Kevin Bacon uh, game I like to play with myself. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to our episode on Diablo. Long time coming. We've covered Blizzard in the past, but this we're focusing on specifically just how this insanely addictive wonderful, beautiful nightmare came to be as we are, I mean, literally like people are 
very excited. The people who spent the hundred dollars or whatever it was to play it a day early are like sitting with bated breath right now, two hours away from the game finally dropping for them. And uh, I'm excited for those people. Uh, I am excited to play the game myself. I have, you know, I'm like maybe, I feel like I'm like a lame person for this, but I got really into it on Diablo 3. Kind of missed the Diablo 1 and 2 bus. Wasn't a big PC gamer until I got serious about streaming and uh, ended up with a gaming PC. But actually, now that I think about it, I think we first played Diablo 3 on PS4 because, interestingly enough, uh, Diablo 3 is when they crossed over to consoles eventually, and people were really pleasantly surprised at how good of a job they did doing that mm-hmm. and how well, surprisingly well it translated to consoles for being such a point-and-click thing. Uh, and I agreed. And I think for... Let's get into it. With my gush on Diablo... It's a few different things. I hope to sit down and have a conversation with my buddy Drew, a.k.a. The Rooster, if you're on my Twitch stream. Uh, he literally uh, has forbidden himself from playing Diablo 4. He got so into it and actually got into like the money-making aspects of the auction house in Diablo 3. And I remember this time. I remember this was one of, you know, anytime I have a friend who's really obsessed with something, a video game that like I have no interest in, at least at the time, I had no interest in it because didn't have the PC also kind of just seemed like not my thing because I just Mm -hmm. really never dabbled with like anything like that or StarCraft or World of Warcraft or anything, you know, any kind of PC, you know, with the menus everywhere and all this kind of stuff. Um, So I just didn't think it was necessarily for me at the time. And I remember just how fucking obsessed he was with this game and, and it was just really interesting to like live through him and enjoy the game through him for a little bit. And then... It comes out on PS4. I don't know how I ended up. Maybe I just, I don't know if someone gifted it to me or if I just bought it for content. But I was doing Lexi Loves Game Night, which is how my Twitch career began. And we decided, and I was just always looking for new gameplay experiences with Lexi. And I was like, all right, let's try Diablo 3. Like, kind of as a lark, I really did not think. I mean, when I try to think of games Lexi might be into, her shit is Mario Kart and Super Mario Bros. Yeah. 3. That's it. Like, that's the shit she loves, like, and, she, you know, from her childhood, I can always get a game of Mario Kart 8 going with her. That's yeah, I about don't, it. Yeah, imagine showing her a picture of a big old fat asthma Dan and just being like, huh? Isn't this the right. game for you? But lo and behold, we jump into the game, and I initially was so surprised at how playable it was and how not uh, uh, difficult it was to get into it. And then she got really into it. And we ended up playing through the entire campaign. I believe we streamed it. And we were, like, hooked. We were like, this is a great couple activity. And we couldn't believe. And I think that's the interesting thing about Diablo for the outsider. It seems like it's this heavy, pro-gamer, mm-hmm. intense experience thing. And I think it can become that, obviously. Everyone talks about, like, the post-game experience and... You know, wh- wh- Diablo really begins like kind of late, like after you beat the main story and get all this other stuff going with the Paragon points and everything. But that said, we were like blown away at how addictive and fun and just easy it was to just get sucked right in and and get into that uh, uh, combat loop and into that uh, loot 
loop. And, you know, it was, it's like, yes, on its face, there's like a ton, ton of different ty- equipment types and all this. And, and, you know, uh, but, but the numbers go up, man, the numbers go mm-hmm. up and anybody can see how this thing's better than this other thing. And then you slot it in and now the number's better. And regardless, nothing's like fucking ripping you to pieces that early on in the gameplay experience either. So, you know, we can kind of keep each other alive and enjoy and get through it. And just that exploration and everything. So it not only is it a really weirdly good like bonding game for a more experienced player and a lesser experienced player. It's also a the perfect like podcast game. For me, like, I'm so excited for Diablo 4 to come out more than anything else because I haven't had a good podcast game since I was, like, super into Vampire Survivors. And I'm just so excited to have that again where I just sit and turn my brain off and just, like, (laughs) go through this experience and enjoy all the pretty uh, horrors and all this kind of stuff. You know, another memory I had actually was kind of a more, much more sentimental one with this game is that shortly after the passing of a good friend of mine, I remember, like... I didn't know what to do with myself and my time and my mind. And I remember I got in uh, to a game with my buddies, uh, Kellen and Carly, who were also like kind of grieving this situation. And the only game we could think to play, even though we hadn't been playing it together or anything, was Diablo. Because we could just get in and just like fucking smash some shit and like just kind of try to get through this really intense experience and it was the perfect thing to just have to just mindlessly fucking bash your way through while really what you're doing is like just being with some people and grieving. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't know. I, I I have this fondness for specifically Diablo 3. I've had this curiosity about Diablo 2. I think even before Diablo 3, uh, you know, the butcher in Diablo 2 was always like an internet cultural thing, you know? Um and uh Witcher was in Diablo one as well. Oh, was it okay? So maybe yeah, going from there as well. Uh so he's I've always like had the this... first roadblock. He's the first yeah. like the the penultimate or whatever, the the uh the the standard Diablo one experience was like starting this game, expecting it to be this like heady RPG, realize that you're just smashing skeletons apart yeah. left and right. Feeling like a real badass, and just and then that the butcher j- yeah. just come fresh meat, <laughs> and like going like, oh shit, oh fuck, there's there's a method to this madness. Oh right. okay, right, and like that's like that was like a very important part of the video game, kind of telling you how to play it. Yeah. So what about say, for you, Jake? Yeah. What's your I never. Connection? I feel like an idiot having ignored this franchise up until pretty much this week of diving in head first. I mean, casting my my memories back to 1997 when Diablo one came out. Uh, this was I was deep in on my uh, N64. I was playing Star yeah. Fox and GoldenEye and Diddy Kong Racing and Turok and on my PC when I like had it free because there was still just the one computer in the computer room. Uh, I was playing Star Wars Jedi Knight or uh, Wing Commander or something. Postal. Played a lot of Postal because I was a um, just a, a, a dangerous little boy. Um, and so Diablo, I had no frame of reference for like RPGs in general, uh, whether that's D&D, tabletop stuff, JRPGs, computer RPGs. Like I just... The the whole concept of leveling and managing inventory and all this had been completely separate from me. 
And so I just saw screenshots in all of the PC gaming magazines, you know, all these like gnarly renders of Diablo and these demons and just looking like, oh, this is some like dark and grimy horror game or something like this looks like unappealing to me. I just want to have fun. And having played through um, some of Diablo one, some of Diablo three, some of Diablo immortal, like this is a fun ass game. This really is like a brilliant kind of, uh, uh, I don't know how to, it's, it's like this remix of a D and D campaign, this like ultimate kind of literally starting its own genre, the ARPG, the action RPG, where you're still, uh, you know, building this character, you're still fine tuning his strengths and weaknesses or hers. You can pick genders in three and immortal and four. Um, and really just like getting that dopamine fix of new loot and fresh kills and conquering these like seemingly unkillable enemies and like unlocking new skills and just creating this perfect flow state where you're just decimating hordes of enemies. I just never had an idea about this. For the longest time, I thought this was a dour kind of just like immersive, just, you know, one of those things where you're like, you know, trying to like, Make sure that your left arm is properly like some deus ex shit where like the fun kind of like I don't want spreadsheets. You can become a spreadsheet lord, especially in the late game. Like, Uh you know, there's a you know, if you're playing like hardcore mode, hell difficulty, you know, trying to make sure you can get trillions of damage out like that is its own thing. And you're allowed to play at that level. And a lot of people have played at that level. A lot of people claim that's the true way to play at that level, but the barrier to entry just from like game start to I am having fun was so immediate and so instantaneous that I felt like an idiot for neglecting this franchise this entire time. Yeah, that's kind of how, so we're describing a very similar situation. I think that's the little secret of Diablo is like, it's actually like such a just dumb, dumb game for fun idiots. And it has this brooding... (laughs) terrifying, you know, hot topic gates of hell, uh, you know, exterior. But once you get in, it's all fucking just a really fun, addictive, simple, easy to play gameplay loop that just sucks you in and just gives you some peace from your goddamn stupid life. (laughs) It's truly incredible how they took like 1970s, 80s, uh, satanic panic D&D vibes, cranked that up to a million and then cut out all the boring shit in a RPG experience and just created this streamlined, intense experience that at once is constantly rewarding, constantly visually busy, constantly throwing out new challenges and new like things in front of you. But also, like you mentioned, you can have you can watch a TV show on your second monitor. You can like, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. I, I did. I, I was watching like GDC talks on my computer while playing Immortal on my tablet. And I was like in just that perfect flow state. It was And Jake, incredible. I would highly recommend too, and maybe we'll both get Diablo 4 and, and actually do this together, but the hangout with your friends uh, game gameplay version of this is so enjoyable. Like just chilling with a couple of buddies, even more so than, than Overwatch because there's just so little even need to be like, oh shit, now we have to focus and like actually communicate on what's going on. Like there's so little of that that you really are just bashing through things, 
feeling that sense of accomplishment uh, as you go through it while just talking bullshit with your buddies. <laughs> You know, it's it's a great time. So hell yeah, I'm glad we're finally doing this episode. And uh, it's we- it feels weird in this day and age to speak kindly about Blizzard, but I think more so than <laughs> Blizzard, uh, it's it, it, you know it harkens back to a much cooler time with Blizzard and a much cooler time in game development. This is also a really fun story because it's before you know it's kind of what they were saying. Like, and we'll get into it, but like they just hired people who like barely had any experience. Like nowadays, most people on a staff have, you know, have worked on other AAA games before and or have gone to college, gotten a degree in game design and this sort of thing. But this is, I love this time in game development because it's the wild, wild west. And people are just coming up with these ragtag teams and bringing these really interesting new ideas to the to the table and crunching way too hard. We'll talk about that. I mean, this is a great, this is another one of those, they're like every episode, the two Raider episode. Uh, there's so many episodes of game development where you were looking back, you're like, this is an unhealthy amount of game crunch, and we'll definitely see that here as well. Um, but still, I love the part where it's just this like exciting, pioneering spirit when it came to video games that you just don't get as much anymore, except for maybe in like the indie scene. But mm-hmm. here we go. Diablo is an action role-playing dungeon crawler first developed by Blizzard North and first conceived by a man named David Brevik. Since 1997, there have been three main games in the series with the fourth one having just been released as of the time of this record, like literally hours away, the people who at least paid for the advance uh, play t- date and time will get to play it. So very exciting uh, that we're doing this right now. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. David Brevik was born in Madison, Wisconsin. Let's talk about him. His family later moved. He attended high school in the San Francisco Bay Area. And during that time, he lived at the base of a mountain. And that mountain was called... Mount Diablo. Uh, That's definitely where he pulled the name from, his childhood uh, hometown. Yeah, he he explicitly in his uh, GDC talk where he taught where he breaks down like kind of the entire story of how the original Diablo came into being. Uh, Talked about taking the name for granted because he didn't speak Spanish and hearing that it meant the Devil Mountain. Just blowing his tiny little Whoa. child brain. <laughs> I'm a high as shit all of a sudden. <laughs> Brevik said, it's all I ever wanted to do, make games. And even in high school, I was thinking about what kinds of games I could make and what names I could use. 
He went to school at California State University, and after that, he immediately got into the games industry, first working at a digital clip art company. (laughs) Brevik said, I started working in video games professionally in 1991. I worked at a very small startup making an Atari Lynx game called Gordo 106, the Mutated Lab Monkey. I was unable to, and that is not me making bullshit up for the show. That is real. I was unable to finish the game after some financial troubles with the startup and the fact that the monkey broke out of the lab. From there, I went to Iguana Entertainment where I made super high-impact football and then helped work on a variety of titles there, Arrow the Acrobat, NBA Jam, and others. In 1993, I left Iguana and started Condor with the Schaefer Brothers. They were artists I worked with at my original job. Condor became Blizzard North, and the rest is history. And I did look into it. The mutated monkey is still at large and has killed upwards of 10 to 12 Specifically housewives. For some reason, it targets housewives. Uh, so to, yeah. So like you said, he, uh, him and his fellow Condor uh, Games uh, founders met while working for a clip art company. And uh, his stint at Iguana was cut short when the company decided to move to Texas after a lot of, and we've covered this in a couple of other episodes, after a lot of uh, oopsie doodles uh iguana had a massive upset and eventually became a retro game or yeah what's it called the the um the uh donkey kong country studio and the uh the metroid prime studio i think they're just called Uh, retro games that that's how we ended up talking about them like i know we've talked about iguana but we've never done an nba jam episode which i would totally do by the way uh retro studios i believe is what they're called anyway Mm. um the name Condor was, uh, oddly enough, a uh, code name that they would do before they quit their jobs to start Condor to describe uh, the, the the game that they were going to make as a studio. And they would call it Operation Condor. And so they just decided to call it their company Condor based on that. Like you said, Brevik had the basic outline of what he wanted their big game to be, and it was always called Diablo. There is a PDF file that he uh, released from uh, after around 2017. You can find it online, and it is the original design document. Supposedly, 20 different publishers all turned it down, and uh, it involves this um, uh, isometric, tile-based, roguelike game where you are exploring dungeons. Everything that we know about the original Diablo is there. There's the town not called Tristam yet, but you know, there's this big temple and you go downwards into it. You come back up, upgrade your gear, talk to the villagers, do all your shit, go back down. And it really uh, was heavily, heavily, heavily based on these turn-based roguelike uh, games of his childhood. And these were things that were done in like ASCII character graphics even. Yeah. Um, uh, and very important that like the timing system was essential to the flow of it. That like you move, the enemy moves. You attack, the enemy has a chance to attack. You retreat, the enemy can choose to like follow or do a long range attack. It was very, very much turn-based and definitely had a dark gothic art style. He uses, oddly enough, a lot of clip art of old kind of, uh, you know, wood prints and wood cuts of angels and demons in the document. But that had to be put on hold because they were a functioning company and they needed work. And one of their first gigs that they did was uh, they were licensed out by Acclaim Entertainment, who also worked with Iguana on a lot of releases, 
who were also who were licensed out by Sunsoft to produce a Justice League fighting game for the Sega Genesis. Yes. Known as Justice League Task Force. Before before we get deeper into that, uh, going back to the roguelikes that he was basing it off of, Brevik said it was largely modeled around a roguelike game called Angbad. All of those games were turn-based, and I played them for long, long periods of time. A bit into the development, the idea of turning Diablo into a real-time game started whispering around the office. Uh, so, so that Angbad is a roguelike, dun- roguelike dungeon crawler based on the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien, and has a player start in a town where they can purchase equipment. Then they enter a maze-like fortress consisting of a hundred floors filled with traps, monsters, equipment, and hidden floors. Now, the other weird influence besides the roguelikes he was playing. I, for, you ha- I really must stress that you're imagining an early DOS game or something. Yes. And these, no, these are dots and squares and letters yes. and numbers. There are no discernible, this is all just like, imagine this number eight is a troll. Like, it's not yeah, a totally. game like we would recognize. And another influence is the game Telengard, Telengard, released in 1982, and has the player traveling through dungeons with the sole mission to kill stuff to make the player character stronger. And then the other weird as fuck, like kind of out of left field influence is the amazing video game, though. You have to give a props. NHL 94. And that is in terms of its accessibility to oh, new players. Yes. Brevik said, one of the things we were trying to get with Diablo was easy ease of gaming. The NHL series was really good at this, where you just click and you're in the game. Before Diablo, when you created a character, you had to answer 53 questions about this, that, and the other. You had to name it, give it a backstory, and so on. We just wanted to get in and start smashing things. And I will say, NHL 94 fucking rules. (laughs) This is a direct call out to uh, the Bethesda Softworks games at the time. All of those Elder Scrolls-ass games. And, you know, to a lesser extent, and all these, a lot of modern Bethesda games really do like, you know, what are your stats? What's your backstory? What's your hair color? Right. Like it, re, you know, even back then before like these immersive graphics were the norm, it would take, yeah, like 15 minutes to actually get to playing an Elder Souls, Elder Scrolls game when you first started. And they explicitly wanted to get rid of that. They were also inspired by the menu system and of a uh, doom. Yes. Cause if you play Diablo one, it's just like, what do you want to be? Sorcerer, barbarian, rogue. Like, and it just, the text is huge and the icon just a- and, goes dunk, yeah. dunk, dunk. The menu and also the peripheral on screen, having that stuff at the very bottom be very simply laid out and give you all the information you need about your character. Uh, but yeah, those those are the games kind of going into the pot for this idea he's playing with. And as Condor is at the same time making a game on the Sega Genesis with Japanese studio Sunsoft called Justice League Task Force, a fighting game featuring the DC comic superheroes uh, and Acclaim, I guess, too, right? Sunsoft and Acclaim. Uh, and it's a fighting game featuring the DC comic superheroes as well as a couple of NFL games. But that Justice League game had also a version being worked on at the same time for the SNES by a different dev group called Silicon and Synapse. And if you are familiar with our uh, previous episodes, they would go on to become Blizzard. So weirdly enough, uh, Condor and Silicon and Synapse had no idea that another company (laughs) was working on the same game. There was no, because in my head, these are like ports, you know, these, you know, the, uh, but during this Sega versus SNES and then maybe an NES port, maybe a PC port, 
they were just given the premise and the character list and told to go buck wild. And given how different, uh, you know, just that it was made by two explicitly different teams, the end result has more similar than different, which I find fascinating. This, of course, was uh, gruff, hardcore, bearded Aquaman. This was long-haired Superman. This was 90s-ass DC characters at the time. And they finally... Uh, Got to know that the other existed at the Consumer Electronics uh, Show, uh, CES, <laughs> in Vegas, where in the video game section, they set up their booth, and right across from them, they saw another booth with a game that looked pretty much the same <laughs> as theirs. And they were Wild. like, hi, how's it going? Uh, it was there that they first made that, con- where Condor first made a connection with Blizzard. Um Amongst as they were, you know, engaging with each other, they found out that Silicon and Synapse was actually going to change their name to Blizzard. And they were working on this cool new game called Warcraft, which uh, immediately Brevik recognized was a just giant leap. And in the uh, real time strategy genre, something that really wasn't a thing except for good old Dune 2, as we've mentioned every single time. Real time. The classic. Everything came from Dune 2. Uh, a little quick side note, while working on the Justice League game, they hired an artist, Condor did, named Michio Okamura, who had no previous games experience and did not use a computer. He did line drawings that they would convert into game graphics. He would go on to design the original Diablo and be their main character designer for the first games. Uh, so again, that just speaks also towards, important name to know, but it speaks also so much towards where they were at in terms of a company, in terms of their hires like I mean these people are coming from the the absolute just complete the greenest you could possibly be going into video game design to where like their lead artist isn't even working off of a computer I mean it's so rudimentary at this point as they're beginning to create Diablo I mean he also uh, was uh, they also hired a keyboardist in a six member bar band that they had found (laughs) from the area named uh, Matt Ullman uh-huh. who uh, was tasked with doing sound design and composing music tracks for Justice League Task Force for the uh, Sega Genesis. He it's would crazy later do these guys create all some the of the most like music. Yeah, these guys end up creating some of the most like iconic video game shit ever, and they came out of like nothing and and nowhere. It's so wild. So. Uh, as Jake already mentioned, they pitch this game around to a bunch of publishers. Uh, you know, the publishers respond with RPGs are dead. I mean, even Blizzard at first, I believe, kind of passes on the idea a little bit uh, until uh, they put out the breakthrough real-time strategy game, Warcraft, Orcs and Humans. Uh, this is in 1994. This makes them come back around the Condor games and David Brevik's idea. But they ask for two changes. They want to make it real-time and they want to make it multiplayer because that's the way it was on Warcraft. Brevik, interestingly enough, balks at this idea at first, but Condor put it to a vote and he was outnumbered, thankfully. So this they is went amazing. In. This is amazing. I have to, this, the way Brevik tells this story, and keep in mind, this is the game that he has, you know, this is the game he was born to make. He had the vision, he had the drive, he had everything ready to go. And an outsider just immediately tells them to disregard a core aspect of this classic gameplay that he had grown to love and wanted to revitalize. And his own team agrees with him and votes him down. He, uh, a little bit flustered, tells the entire staff to go home, have an early Friday, 
And he sits down and tries to figure out what does this even look like? What do I even do? So he sits down at his at his computer console. And the first thing he tries is just keep the same system, but up the tick speed when deciding when a turn is over by 20. Like just tw- the same game, but 20 times faster. And mm. he watches as his little warrior guy, instead of like, positioning and waiting for the skeleton and then positioning and then raising his staff and smacking the thing. His little guy just walks right up to a skeleton, bashes it. The uh, defeat animation plays extra fast. So it just looks like his guy just walks over and just beats its fucking brains in and it ports out on the, on the ground and just, he describes this as the skies opening up. Everything yep. made sense. And this was lo, it. the action RPG is born. Why it's wait? It's kind of amazing. Why wait? You have the, the, the <laughs> you have the items. They have hit points. Just fucking kill them. It's brilliant. It's great, and it really is just. It, it, what that feeling is, the way he describes it, is continued on up to this day is so re- satisfying. There's just something about <laughs> it that is just so addictive and just gets its hooks in you. Just click on that thing and watch it melt. Uh, the is hot so much bar fun. even. Like, you know, because if yeah. you play a, a standard tabletop RPG game, there's like there's steps to it. You know, you look down at your items, your weapons. You look right. down at your special skills. You forget how many dice rolls of X you got to do to like do this. But when it, but after all that schmagegging, you say, I use a uh, overhand strike on the, I don't know, let's say uh null, whatever, some D and D ass monster. And the DM says, okay, you do it. Roll for damage. It hits. He drops a mysterious uh, pauldron and you go, Ooh, all of that anticipation and buildup and release just condensed into a single click of a mouse. It's just, it just is, it's like a hack. It's like yeah. some kind of weird efficiency backdoor to your standard thrill of an RPG experience with the ease and intensity of just like hitting a button on your hot bar and watching the fireworks go. It's so stupid how no one else had like figured this out before so as for the look they initially went with a claymation approach as the fighting game primal rage was hot in arcades the level was based off of the fighting game primal rage if you remember that game mm-hmm. it's all like they're all like uh, animals they're all like and farting and pissing and they're just like yeah. <laughs> blood and teeth and they're real it's just nasty it's no longer like a classic but it was such a fucking big deal back in the day that game like it was oh they got a fi- primal rage cabinet hell yeah Mom, look away. Don't look at what I'm doing with this monkey. <laughs> uh, this this was dropped pretty quickly because the resources they needed would be completely insane. Uh, and they so they went with a, more of a animated approach, but still kind of kept some of that claymation-y feel vibe to the look. As for the isometric look and grid, Brevik used a screen grab of XCOM for reference. It had just come out around the time of development, and the two games literally have the same dimensions mm-hmm. because that's how heavily based off pixel off to of, pixel it is. Yeah, it could, you could take a Diablo map and put it on an original XCOM map. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love. 
all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Weirdly, this is another weird thing that uh, Brevik talked about in his uh, GDC t- or retrospective. But the in their like excitement to finally get a publisher, uh, Brevik agreed to publish Diablo or to publish Diablo with Blizzard for only three hundred thousand dollars, and that is uh, not enough to support a studio of fifteen people for a year that it would take to actually make it. They kind of like fuck themselves on this. And what they what ended up keeping them alive was they had a meeting with uh the 3DO company. If you remember uh was it Trip Hawkins from uh maybe the Activision episode, classic uh video game wheeler and dealer in the 80s. Uh the 3DO kind of flopped at first run, but They were going to release a second iteration of the hardware and they agreed to make some kind of a football game because that was the the other thing they'd been working on uh, besides Diablo and Justice League. They agreed to make a football game for the 3DO 2 for a million dollars. And that was a massive windfall for them. Um, The 3DO company then sold their hardware business to... uh, I believe Samsung or no Matsushita, whatever. They sold it to an Asian firm and they were off the hook for making the game. But 3DO realized that the deal wasn't finished yet. And so they started bidding for Condor to give up on Diablo and finish making the football game for them because apparently this football game they made was like cutting edge graphics. It was like this visual showpiece and it was like wowing people at trade shows and in business meetings. And so they like needed this product to prove that the hardware could like survive and that it was worth the sale value they were having with Matsushita or Samsung. I see different, um, different uh, information out there. Uh, Eventually, they turned down that money. They like took them like they didn't get the full million dollars, but they got enough in advance that they could like stay afloat just enough to keep Diablo going. They thought Diablo was the they thought Diablo and Blizzard, even for less money, was the like more, I guess, just they shared their game philosophy. They shared their outlook on what digital entertainment can be. And they wanted to stay on that ship rather than leave for extra money, which I think is a fascinating little side thing. Um, mm-hmm. Brevik also talks about how uh, his buddy, <laughs> Sabir Bhatia, uh, wanted to use office space in the Condor Entertainment Studios to like just work on this little email company that he had uh, been stewing on. And Brevik was already deep in... Uh, development for Diablo. He was harried. He was managing teams. He was programming. And uh, his friend Sabir was like, no, it's email, but on the internet. 
And Brevik was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Email's already on the internet. This is stupid. You're stupid. Sabir, his friend, was like, all right, tell you what, just let me use that one little office in the back. I know it's empty. I'll give you a 10% share of the company. Like Bravo was like, fuck you. You're yeah. I already said you're an idiot. And I'll say it again, you stupid idiot. Whatever your dumb email thing, you'll never be worth any amount of money. What Sabir yeah. <laughs> What Sabir meant was email, but the client is accessed via web browser. The company was Hotmail, and it was sold uh, about a year later for $400 million. Uh, That single bit of stock or that single stake in the company, that 10%, through the various acquisitions over the years, would have been worth $280 million today if he had just let him use the empty office. And Brevik says that even with all this excitement around Diablo, even knowing that this is when his legacy will is like born, even though he knows that like on his tombstone, it'll be like, here lies David Brevik, the guy what did Diablo. He can't not think about that time and kick himself and be like, fuck, <laughs> fuck, God damn it. Why did I do that? Fuck. So funny. So yeah, Condor becomes Blizzard North and they're working on this game and this multiplayer thing is now a big part of it. And so that's how we get to, and I'm sure we talked about this in our Blizzard episode, but that is how we get to Battle.net. Uh, the famous Battle.net is started with uh, around this time with Diablo. Uh, so Blizzard South, uh, Silicon Synapse, which is now Blizzard South at this point in the story, is working on Battle.net, a way for players, to, uh, uh, a way for the players of their games to connect online. Blizzard North then starts working with Blizzard South to further develop Battle.net, uh, which is how it came to be. And no one could have predicted how rampant and quickly folks would get to cheating using the system. They knew it was going to happen, but figured it'd be some isolated incidents. Brevik said, then the game came out and instantly we were like, oh my God, they can just upload the cheats and everybody can cheat. I didn't even think about that. Also at that time, Battle.net ran on a single computer. Brevik said, it's not much of a secret anymore. I don't know if I'm going to get into trouble if I say it, but I'm going to say it. Battle.net ran on one computer because we had people directly hooking up with each other. We didn't have to carry a lot of bandwidth. We just had to make those connections. And that's how the cheating was so easy because it wasn't a client server uh, setup for the first game. It was peer to peer. It was peer-to-peer, so you had the full game on your computer, and therefore you could get into those files and mess with whatever and get it and 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 cheat the shit out of the game. Uh, to the although so, it's it's a little even more nefarious than that because as the cheat community and the hacksaw community kind of grew, you could corrupt people, save files, you could del- uh, fuck yeah. with people's computers, like. When you logged in for like a rousing co-op game of Diablo on the original PC through Battle.net, you were putting your entire system on the line. Like they could do some damage. Yeah, it's pretty crazy uh, uh, what was going on there. And that definitely, I mean, it was all just being tested out for the first time. Uh, also, what was pretty crazy was the crunch for the game. Not even as bad as it would get later on, but the crunch period was over eight to nine months. Brevik's wife was pregnant at the time and had their baby on January 3rd, 1997. The game was released three days before in December 31st, 1996. Upon release, they offered uh, uh, they offered $100 to the first player who beat Diablo. This was actually done very quickly by someone who used this health swapping skill. 
to swap health. They would swap health with Diablo, almost get killed, then swap the health back just so they could deal the final blow. And they actually ended up removing that skill pretty early on uh, and paid up to the man. Also, they put out a contest to name the wise old man NPC that helps to guide the player through the game. They asked for folks to enter who had cool names, and they would pick the coolest one. And there was a real-life person named Deckard Kane that ended up entering or and winning. I, the I, I believe the winner named their son Deckard Kane and named the character Very after cool. their son, I believe is how that worked Even out. Even better. That's awesome. So yeah, that's how they got it. They got that. The game comes out. The game is quite successful, uh, for sure. Very much so, to at least in order to uh, get into making a sequel. Uh, and this was also the sequel was also driven by how much they had already wanted to improve upon the first game, just from the making of that first game. Uh, one big one was obviously how easy it was to hack the game. So they knew they needed uh, to move away from peer-to-peer to a client-server system. Eric Schaefer said, Even at the end of Diablo 1, I had a big wish list that sort of turned into the Diablo 2 design document of what we would do from there. They've also stated, though, that there was never a definitive design document. Here's how we get where we get into like the really interesting way that this particular group approached making games that I think created really good product, but it was an incredibly frustrating system to work in, in the sense that it was pretty free form and open ended, which meant a lot of like making big changes and then having to go back and like instill that into the rest of the game they were always having at all times they had a running build of the game and they would iterate on it as they as they would go uh and they would only plan uh, like a week to a month ahead of time and this style definitely worked obviously in terms of like creating diablo 2 but also they're they're always having to rebalance every time they would add something in uh, also, this is a time of like immense growth. So they move offices a couple times. They they expand the staff. The, the team goes from around 15 employees to around 45 employees, which is like nothing today. But that's still triple the staff. Um, and Eric Schaefer had this to say about just the whole crunch uh, into this game. None of us had any management experience and kind of still don't. We did a lot of things wrong. I think the classic thing we did wrong was just mismanaging the time and the scheduling. And we started to crunch to finish the game, what, a year and a half before it came out, thinking that, hey, we're pretty close. We're four months away if we can really push and get this thing done. And then after about four months of crunching, we were nowhere near, and we had to call an end to the crunch for a while. So that was just classic time mismanagement and just a bad prediction on our part. Happens all the time, but I think that was one of the worst examples of all time that I'm familiar with. Crunch, by the way, means working seven days a week, all waking hours, going home at midnight, returning at eight in the morning to get back to it. I mean, it is just incessantly Oh, no, they talked about like buying sleeping bags for the development staff so they could sleep in the office, ordering food all hours of the night to keep them there. Um, There was also weird intercompany shenanigans happening because uh, (laughs) the... Sierra Online, who kind of was like the big owner of Blizzard at the time, uh, basically gave the go ahead to release a Diablo expansion pack with no input from Blizzard North or regular Blizzard. Mm. And uh, they tasked it to an in-house dev group called Synergistic Software 
We're given six weeks to slap it all together. And the uh, result was the expansion pack Diablo Hellfire. Uh, This culminated into an emergency all hands meeting where the Diablo 2 staff had to sit down and tell the uh, Hellfire staff, take all this shit out of the game because that's stuff we're putting in Diablo 2. And I will be damned if like you just arbitrarily add these features or do this stuff. It had no Battle.net support. It was a single player expansion. And it uh, just a lot of people uh, just dunked on it for being kind of a shallow uh, kind of just cash grab in the franchise's history. Although you can buy it now on uh, GOG.com if you are so curious. Don't worry, there'll be a, lo- a few more shallow cash grabs uh, <laughs> ahead. Not the biggest one, probably. Uh, so some big changes for Diablo 2 from Diablo 1. A huge one from the first game was not limiting it to one town and one dungeon beneath it. They wanted different locales, not just dungeons, outdoor landscapes to explore. And they let concepts of these levels inform the story stuff. So they would come up with the environments and things like that and then go back and and create the story out of it. And that's pretty apparent, I feel like. In terms of lore, like, I think you could definitely get into the lore on Diablo, but I think it's also just fun to enjoy, like, the pretty cut scenes and then just, like, again, turn your brain off. It's it's never too serious. They also added a quest log to keep track of quests and a waypoint system. And this is actually kind of new at the time. I don't know if it was, like, the first instance of it, but they point to it being one of the first, for sure. Another addition that had a massive impact on modern games, especially RPGs, was... Now, this was maybe the first, the skill tree, Mm. which apparently David Brevik came up with in the shower. (laughs) Apparently, he came up with a lot of stuff in the shower. Eric Schaefer said, at some point early on, we went with the skill tree idea. We didn't start with that. That was a brainstorm by Brevik again. He was like, hey, let's make skill trees that are similar to tech trees in Civilization 2 which I believe we were playing at the, at the time. So that sort of set the pace. Then we started to think, okay, what would be on the trees uh, for the various characters? Should they have shared abilities like they did in Diablo 1, or should they have their own skills entirely? This is how we got to the different classes, but done in a way that made the player feel they still had a unique experience with any given class. Very interesting. You don't think about the origin of the skill tree. Something is in like every single Mm -hmm. video game these days, you know? I mean, it is kind of ridiculous. uh, In the first Diablo, you could, by just applying your skill points, you could start as a, you know, a warrior and just start slinging spells because you discovered kind of three hours into the game, that's kind of actually how you want to play it without really Uh any punishment. Uh, Diablo 2, yeah, introduces these class-specific builds that um, you really, like, the number of builds you can have in this game is very intense, and you can, like, kind of get it wrong a little bit, and you might have to start respecking if you uh, start entering the higher difficulties and all of a sudden realize that, like, oh, I dumped everything into lightning spells, and in this one dungeon on nightmare mode, uh, everything is invulnerable to lightning damage. Shit, shit, I fucked up, I fucked up. (laughs) Another huge one that is in so many games now that we completely t- like take for granted at this point, the color system for rarity, which is, you know, for loot. I mean, that is something, you know, purple, gold, whatever. Green, to blue, see, yeah. Green, blue, yeah, to see, that you know, to, to be able to judge, like, how rare, how good it is off the bat without even having to look at a description. That is in so much shit now, it's ridiculous. David Brevik said, in some roguelikes, they would have your common item and your magic item. So they were different 
different colors of text or whatever. If it was a magic item, it was blue. If it was a normal item, it was white, that kind of thing. And so we took it a step further and went with the rarity levels. The rarer something is, then it was a different color. That really has stuck with games. And then they took it to a whole new level with World of Warcraft, and it really became standardized role-playing stuff ever since then. So crazy to think skill tree well like how many just fundamental influences this one game had on fortnite destiny like it's uh 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 uh, what's it blah 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 blah. borderlands assassin's creed yeah anything Uh, anytime you've grinded through the same level over and over division to try and get that mythic rarity drop started here and that's crazy but that's like such an addictive thing like the way that colors and form immediately it does something to the brain it, it feeds the brain it, it gives that dopamine rush when you see just the the thing is gold you you don't know the points you don't know the stats that just you see that you got a thing that has a gold rarity and you you are so happy and like that is so fundamental and necessary to loot grind, you know? And I mean, just, yeah, any, yeah, Borderlands, any anything that has to do with loot, like loot was, the loot grind thing was formed here in Diablo 2 especially. Mm-hmm. So uh, Diablo 2 launches in June of 2000. It sells great. They are also dealing with one of the earliest instances of needing to patch the game to get rid of exploits the characters were finding, like, immediately. The first big one was there was a gold-duping mm. exploit that they had to immediately patch out. David Brevik said, One of the things that really separated Blizzard from a lot of the pack was the fact that we continued to support and patch our products and get rid of bugs and problems and include enhanced features and stuff like that even after the game launched. Something that's so normalized now in video games, but also to an awful exp- extent in the sense that, like, now... Now people use that as an excuse to to ship broken games like on the onset and fix it later, and we're dealing with that left and right in video games now. But it, it is uh, very interesting that it was kind of started here as well. Uh, they released. Oh, uh, yeah. I watched uh, a couple of videos of you know longtime Diablo fans like just kind of going through this series history. And uh, apparently, the Stone of Jordan yes. was this very rare item that. Because it was necessary and like vital and also was like key in item dupe glitches became like kind of the prison cigarette currency of the uh, of the Diablo 2 Battle.net servers that like it wasn't about how much gold you had. You could replicate all the gold you want. It wasn't about like certain items. It was just how rich you were in Stone of Jordan rings was like the real measure of how much of a fucking tycoon you were. In this world. Yeah. uh, One thing, one quote I read, by the way, uh, from someone was like, hey, actually, this game wasn't like this massive hit that people think it was right away. It definitely was the kind of thing that that started okay. It it did okay at first, but, but there were a lot of complaints about you know, some of the issues of the game and stuff like, but after a bunch of bug fixes, after expansions were released, all that, it became like Diablo 2. But it definitely uh, was not this just smash hit right out of the gate. It was something that was kind of a slow, long process that we've seen with other games, you know? You kind of saw that more recently with like Street Fighter V, even though um, to a much lesser degree, but it started off like completely bare bones and then slowly became the game that people think of now as as Street Fighter V, let's say, you know? And that that is something that I think I find very interesting because Diablo II is only seen as this just legend in video games. The 
the higher level play is, you know, yeah, something that became its own community in of itself. People like testing out different builds, finding these like specific, you know, one in 30,000 drops that would like completely make a viable build from something that wouldn't be able to survive the nightmare mode, the uh, hardcore mode, all of this stuff. Yeah, no, it was it was an endless well of like fine to for all the like joys of the kind of twitchy aspects of Diablo play. Diablo 2 was a massive hit for people that wanted to min max and like really get into the nitty gritty of this. Um, one minor disaster that almost killed the game was uh, they used a uh, a a shared source, you know, code source uh, that was handled through a Microsoft software called Visual Source Works. And right before they were about to publish the uh, gold build, which is the quote unquote finished playable build, like something you can send to the disc printer. Um, the entire file that they used, like the base of everything, where all of the art assets, all of the code, everything got corrupted and they had to reassemble and rebuild it on the fly in a mad dash from just copies that were held on like a bunch of different people's computers. And so much was lost in that one file corruption that all of the HD assets that they used to build the graphics and the software was lost forever to the point where, uh, you know, they had to make Diablo 2 resurrected from scratch in 2012. There was no, like, remaster that could be done because they did not have the source files after Damn. that giant blow up. Uh, I will also say, you know, we talked about expansions for the first game, and, of course, they released expansions on the second as well. Uh, that was actually pretty novel as well. Uh, that was inspired by Magic the Gathering and their expansion decks that they would put out. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It wasn't no, like that commonplace was... at this point to do any of that, to do that per se. It was part of Brevik's original pitch for the original Diablo that like instead of, you know, you would buy uh, the base game and then at game stores, you would buy like, like you would buy a pack of Magic the Gathering cards, a single floppy disk with like one megabyte worth of gear or like mo or a new monster or something. But that, yeah, that it was like a physical version of a loot drop was by buying these like little floppy disks at your GameStop and loading it into your base game. That never materialized. The more standard, robust expansion pack made a lot more sense. The uh, major lesson learned from this experience, according to Max Schaefer, the experience of, of making Diablo 2 was design within your scope and within your budget and within your size of your team. And don't just do every cool thing that comes up because you're going to come up with a lot more cool things than you have time to implement. So I do think it's important, but at the same time, would we have what Di Diablo 2 is without their run-and-gun, crazy approach to game making? I feel like it's like not a viable approach in the long term, but just to make something that totally is groundbreaking and totally like completely changes games forever, you almost need that wild, intense, and challenging, hey, if it's awesome, we're putting it in and we'll figure it out approach that they had at this time. But now we get into uh, Diablo 3, starting with Blizzard North's Diablo 3, something that does not actually exist in finalized form. Uh, so things fall apart a bit around this time. 
Initially, Blizzard North is developing Diablo 3 starting in the early aughts up until around 2005. Max Schaefer said, we wanted to make it bigger. We actually were going a more uh, MMO route with it. So it had more players in the game. But we were very early, and it's the point in a project where you don't talk to the public about it because so much can change and so much can go on. There's lots and lots of things that go on at game companies that never hit the light of day because it's just too early to really sit and things are subject to change at the time. So we may have changed our own path radically had we kept going with it. But at the time, our thinking was to go more MMO style with it with big communities in-game, not just like a session-based four-person or eight-person or anything like that, but to really make a big overworld and a giant shared community. Then there is a mass exodus, which happens, uh, David Brevik and the Schaefer brothers, uh, among about uh, another 30 employees, left Blizzard North to form other companies. This was due to issues they were having financially with Blizzard's owner, Vivendi. Uh, Do you you have a little more on this, Jake? Uh, I don't, but the uh, Vivendi's relationship with Blizzard and how they kind of uh, dropped the ball and kind of cleared the way for Bobby Kotick to swoop in with Activision and buy everything out is we covered, I think, in our Activision There you go. Cross-reference with that. I mean, that there, there you have it. All this to say, that whole entire game was scrapped, and they totally restarted the project around 2005. So this time, uh, Diablo 3 is being headed up by Jay Wilson, who worked at Relic Entertainment and specialized in real-time strategy games, with the lead world designer being Leonard Boyarsky, one of the six co-creators of Fallout. Uh, And with a new team, the project had a lot of false starts due to issues centered around what a Diablo 3 looks like, because now they have this like totally, pretty much new team I think that's you're always going to have this issue, and you're working on this like now very beloved within the PC gaming community franchise, you know. So there's all this fear, I think, of like striking too far out away from what the core of the game is, um, staying too faithful, and there's making it not wanting to make the same game again. There was a great analogy I heard someone say uh, in one of the many YouTube essays that I watched on this topic that was like. Uh, Blizzard North is the team that made Diablo, and they're the team that dis- decided what they wanted to go further with in Diablo 2. And they were going to do something crazy and different with Diablo 3, and it was still going to be a Diablo game because it was the mm-hmm. Diablo team making it. But then after they left, the new team now has to make something. They can't just make whatever, they can't make the next Diablo game. They have to make. S- a Diablo game, which is a different thing. It's like the difference between, uh, for your for your example, uh, Holden. It's like someone trying to make. It's like Taylor Swift making a new Taylor Swift album versus someone trying to make something that Taylor Swift fans would uh-huh. like. You know what I mean? It's uh, once that vision is gone, you're kind of at an impasse, and you kind of have a whole new set of priorities. Though Chris Metzen, who is a huge, huge figure at Blizzard. Um, uh, he did character designs. When you think of the house blizzard style of like gnarly orcs and big pauldrons and freaky demons, that's a lot of his stuff, uh, did stay on as a writer. So a lot of the lore that he also kind of helped build in the previous two games, uh, is, you know, he's still there to kind of keep a visual and tonal through line. But it really it, it they do a lot of interesting things with this new Diablo, which ends up becoming 
the most popular d- entry in the series. Yeah, I mean, by well, especially because they tra- they, like, they moved it over people... to consoles. I think that's a big part of that. Uh, to getting a ton of new people in, it's it's the one I got in on for sure. Because I mean, it was just a lot more people had gaming PCs by the time Diablo three came out as well. I think just at that point, it's just a much more normalized thing in the culture. And Diablo two was kind of a long term situation in terms of becoming a massive hit, but it became. You know, like I said, I mean, once it starts showing up in my feed of whatever bullshit I'm looking at on the internet and becoming like a normal thing in my mm-hmm. head, even though I have no relationship to like P- that era of PC gaming, then, you know, obviously it's it's getting out into the larger zeitgeist. And and uh, so people were ready for a Diablo three. The uh, I mean, yeah, Diablo two, they decided to use sprite based graphics because by the time they when they started Polygonal graph, like not everybody had a 3D accelerator mm. card and 3D graphics were kind of dog yeah. shit. Uh, and they got dinged uh, uh, because by the time Diablo 2 came out, it was a little old fashioned with just all these little pixely skeleton guys running around while other companies were moving forward with like Dude, massive I mean, 3D worlds and the kind Diablo of more 3 cutscenes, the yeah, your the art, the look of that hand painted visual look, which Actually, the more I think about it, it kind of models like League of Legends a little bit, or maybe League of Legends models. No, no, no. League of Legends was definitely out before Diablo 3, right? Well, uh, League of Legends was based on Dota, which was based on Warcraft 3, so right, it has right? that Blizzard so DNA. It just, Absolutely. It, it just fucking, it's splashy. It looks, you're right, kind of like the way you felt like you bounced off of the basic grungy look of 2, Three is like vibrant and beautiful, and even though it's like dark and scary and gothicy, and a lot of the look of it, there's also like it's just gorgeous at the same time. But there was a ton of back and forth, a ton of false starts to get to the prod, the end, end result. That there was especially over like people putting in like new enemy types or adding some humorous elements, things like that, and being afraid of striking out in those ways so they'd they'd have to rein them in and and uh there was a lot of like designing monsters and then have to and then having all of that work scrapped uh one anonymous staffer complained to polygon that i think if we'd listened to every that's not diablo that was said there'd be a very small very bland game left over if diablo 2 is a perfect game with no faults then it was a mistake to make a sequel <laughs> very gr- uh, disgruntled uh ex-employee for sure and and that that kind of definitely speaks towards what that process was like. And, but I think they, they, uh, they... Let's not get even into the fucking unicorn <laughs> level and how, like, I, there's there's so much discourse about the cow level yeah. in Diablo 2 and, like, whether or not it deserves right. to be there or, like, not, it's such a weird... Yeah, people are very... Well, it's so self seer I mean, the game is so, like... And I think that's part of what, what, uh, the, what people initially looking from the outside think it's, like... Why, like, the gameplay models that as well, like, how seriously it takes itself and everything, where actually the gameplay is very welcoming and, like, come on in, smash through some levels. It's, don't worry, it's all just, the the loot's really obvious what, what, you know, what's more powerful than what. So, yeah, it's (laughs) still, the game was released in 2012 after an 11-year development cycle, and it was quite successful. Uh, It did not manage to do a whole lot different from 2, with many major fans of the series going back to that game over 3 even. But it was a major graphical update, very addictive like its predecessors. It got the most important thing right, which was the combat. 
really feels good. The skill tree, the the just the the look of the moves, hitting those one, two, threes, and fours on the keyboard and just and just having that constant flow of cooldowns, um, uh, recharging and everything. I mean, I, I hooked me in, it hooked my wife in, my very not video game playing wife very hooked into that gameplay flow and that combat flow. Yeah, it did create kind of this weird uh by yeah, like you said, a lot of people did go back to Diablo 2 cuz it offered them more versatility in the kind of builds they wanted to do. It uh had a more serious tone. Diablo 1, when you get to know those villagers, like they all have very rich mm. backstories and like like real motivations and they've gone, you know, what happened to Tristram Tristram, Tristram uh, has like, you know, really traumatized a lot of people. It, there's, there is like a heaviness to it. Um, in this one, you fall in love with Deckard Kane's niece, uh, Leah. She's pretty hot. She's neat. Um, but uh, a lot of the, uh, also, this was one of the first big, uh oh, we had a big online component and our servers were not ready for it fiascos. The uh, dreaded Error 37 uh, really put the kibosh in a lot of people's enjoyment of the game when it first came out because of the incredible influx of traffic onto the Battle.net servers uh, to the point where it became, listen, I'm talking like the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world era memes. I'm talking uh, one does not simply log into Diablo 3 ass memes. I used to be an adventurer like you. Then I took an error 37 to Diablo. This is 2012, people. This was the pinnacle <laughs> of gamer comedy, was fuzzy JPEGs with text macros over it. All right, Jake, let's talk about the auction house. This is uh, one of the bigger stories that came out of Diablo 3, especially since they walked it back. Anytime something like this gets walked back, it's always a little fascinating. And uh, my buddy got, like I said, got sucked into this and... Uh, really got serious thinking this was going to be a whole nother like income source for them, which is really fascinating. But uh, in the Diablo 3, they had an auction house, a place in the game where players could go and sell their in-game items for real-world currency. It caused a lot of controversy and was eventually removed from the game after two years. According to Jay Wilson... The reason we did not get rid of it right away when we saw it was a problem uh, was legally we didn't think we could because it was advertised on the boxes. So we actually took a long time to try and work out all the legal issues before we finally said, okay, we think it's worth trying it. If we get a lawsuit, oh well. Unlike games like World of Warcraft, where auction houses both don't involve real money and are more geared toward getting better items so the player can go into more and more difficult levels... Diablo is centered around going through the same dungeons over and over again in order to get better and better loot. So being able to buy it, it just kind of breaks the game. It just straight up sort of, it just, it just doesn't, it it doesn't make sense, I guess, is what, what, how, why they eventually walked it back. So the, I think the core, uh, Jay Wilson also claims that it was not the Blizzard corporate overlords that pushed this on them. But I think uh, the main impetus was around this time, we were getting a lot of secondary, you know, uh, this was around the time Warcraft, you could buy Warcraft gold for real money. There were Chinese gold farms. There was uh, Counter-Strike skins. 
that would go on third party websites and be like basically the world's first cryptocurrency yeah. uh, where like, you know, weapon skins and knife skins were going for thousands of dollars. Even Diablo had their own issue with third party sites kind of buying and selling accounts and like arranging for item trades uh, for real world currency. So I think the going impetus was like, well, if this shit is going to happen without us, we might as well get yeah. a cut. Like, why Why just leave that money to, like, some rando? Like, it's our game. We should get the benefit from that. And it's just the – it really is, I think, the difference between the everyday player and the true obsessive who will seek out a third-party client to engage with this kind of weird, like, min-max slash uh, just commodity trading that emerges whenever these digital goods start gaining value outside the world of the game. So yeah, but it just had a lot of people being like, well, I am busting my ass for this. And all that accomplishment is going out the window because some dude in Dubai just like dropped 50 K on a sword. I spent eight months trying to find. Yeah. It's, it's wild, man. I, anytime like the, the real world money thing gets involved in, game assets and and now and now that we've been through this whole nft bullshit and it's kind of hopefully met it's like natural end in certain ways it's been i'm so glad they ended up removing it from the game just as a precedent moving forward well we haven't gotten to diablo immortal yet which uh, kind of brings it all back as we make Um, our way to diablo 4 uh we've got to talk about diablo immortal which was such a fun zany news people wait people love reaper of souls people absolutely adore reaper of souls many people say it's expansion right yeah many people say it's awesome yeah 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 it introduces uh this cool badass angel of death guy as the new big bad uh it's the amount of praise that is heaped on Reaper of Souls to the point where I don't even you can still buy. It's free to like start playing Diablo three on Battle.net, But you can if you're going to buy it, get Reaper of Souls to go with it because it apparently like just elevates and just fixes so much that a lot of people had uh, not. Enjoyed totally agreed. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Diablo three is fucking great. And, and again, even if you're not a PC player, uh, it's it, they moved it over to consoles. We should we we should come back around to that too. They moved it over to consoles, and it was like shocking how fun and how adaptable it was to console, which is something people really did not expect. And what a fun couch co op game as well. So if you're looking for that kind of experience on your console, um, I assure you, Diablo Three is a great option. Um, even for again, like I love speaking towards your non-video game playing spouse or friend or whatever uh, that's very, it, it will suck them in. Uh, give it a shot. Really, really check it out. Uh, of course, Diablo 4 coming out, so you might want to try it with that because apparently it's, Diablo 4 is um, just... Getting great reviews. Getting great so, reviews. Yeah. More of the same, but upgraded to today's graphics. Are like, like it, apparently from what I'm seeing, it's, it's going to do a very similar thing to Diablo 3 but be like that updated version. But before we get to Diablo 4... Oh, wait, wait. Uh, One last thing about Diablo 3 is uh, in the Chinese market, it was not licensed and approved by the government ministry of culture by the time of its release, but there was a Taiwanese version that did have native Mandarin language, 
And so in order to get around the ban on un-government-approved uh, games, uh, copies of the Taiwanese version sold through uh, e-commerce sites were selling what they called big pineapples, which in Chinese is pronounced da bololo, <laughs> da bololo. And uh, people were buying and selling big pineapples and really exchanging codes and copies of huh? the Taiwanese version of Fine. Diablo 3 which I think is a fun little thing. So after six years of Diablo 3 with expansions and whatnot, players were so excited to hear about the new next core game in the franchise. And we're very excited to get some kind of info on that at the BlizzCon of 2018. Unfortunately for them, at the very end of the big announcement showcase, instead they got Diablo Immortal, a free-to-play mobile game that's, well, what I just said, and therefore often seen as a crappy cash grab using the franchise name. During the Q&A afterwards, a fan actually got up and asked if this was some sort of -of out-of-season April Fool's joke. And at another point, when letting the audience know there were no plans to make this playable on PC, the the host asked the audience, what do you guys not have phones? which received groans from the audience. It was one of the worst press conferences I think I've ever seen in video games or just in anything in general. Of course, the game is heavily monetized with a loot box approach that put a really bad taste in people's mouths going into the next game. It was just such a bad... It's not even so awful that Diablo Immortal exists because A, of course Diablo Immortal exists, and B, it's actually, for what those are, a pretty decent version of one of those. But the timing was so dumb... And I just remember when this actually happened and how just head-scratchy it was that they would do this and put it at the very end and, you know, knowing that people were really anticipating some kind of news about a new Diablo to have it be, like, just absolutely not a mainline Diablo game and, you know, I mean, come on. The connotation of free-to-play mobile is always just going to make, especially, like, hardcore PC gamers roll their fucking eyes. It was crazy. 2018 was also a key like anti-loot box, anti-microtransaction yes. era in the gaming discourse. Uh, now, now that everything's season passy, uh, a lot of people want loot boxes back, That's which funny. I find ironic. Um, the famous uh, do you guys not have phones line was actually in response to a, a very impassioned uh, fan at the Q&A who said, you know, because they showcased all these cool things, a lot of stuff like new uh, character uh, classes, a lot of interesting like new monsters and dungeons, even like quality of life things that people have been wanting for, like the ability to aim individual skills and not have it like auto attack things in a specific order. Uh, and he was just like, is it really like, you know, this has been a PC franchise. Like all my shit is on PC. Like, can I not play this on PC? And the guy was like, uh, don't you have phones? You can actually play Diablo Immortal on That's PC so as we speak. I have done it. Um, it doesn't play as well because it was clearly built for phones. Also, it was built in conjunction with NetEase, a Chinese mobile game company. This happens all the time. You know, PUBG is made by Tencent. Like, there are all these collaborations happening all the time. The Chinese market just had, like, the same way we have been trained to accept a $70 uh, base game and, in theory, get all the stuff, even though that's a lie now. Um, 
you know, that's just how games work. Your game's budget is based on these microtransactions there. Uh, obviously, after many, many, many individual controversies that we don't have the time to get into it uh, right now, uh, Blizzard is actually going to lose its deal with NetEase. So the future of the game is a little bit cloudy. But I will say, having played it, it is fun. I had fun. I had fun with it. I It's very streamlined. The, uh, you know, you got plenty of, Deckard Kane is back <laughs> and older than ever. Um, it was sad when he died in Diablo 3. Everybody was like, no, no. Um, I, you know, I'm slaying monsters. I'm talking to characters old and new. I'm trading in gear and upgrading. And like the gameplay flow is there. I haven't hit the wall. A lot of these free to play games really like goad you and like make you feel like a big champion until right. you hit a point where you got to like pay seems to happen a uh, good ways in so you can get a get a decent amount yeah. of enjoyment out of it uh you know before they're asking for also, your, for your my tablet is not that old it has like a flagship processor for just a few years ago and oh, it really? struggles it like chugs on that thing. So like the idea of don't you have phones is actually a l- even more nefarious hmm. than I first heard it. Because if you have like a mid range phone, like you will not be able to play this at like a good frame rate and it'll still like stutter and chug a lot, which I found like a little bit annoying. Uh, I definitely had more fun playing Diablo three than Diablo of immortal, course. but I could play Diablo Immortal in bed and was still actively having fun with it. So and now I don't know I'm really excited for the next one, man. Uh, all the reviews are out. Everything's looking really good for this game. Of course, it, uh, you mentioned season pass. Diablo 4 has a season pass, which is a little like, uh, you know, and I mean, I know there's some elements with, with that. Of course, they have like different versions. You can pay more money to play the game like a day early, which always rubs me the wrong way, but whatever. The game director for this one is Louis uh, Bariga, who worked on the expansion Diablo 3 Reaper of Souls, or Louis. Good pedigree. The uh, development process was far shorter for this one at six years. They wanted to combine the aesthetics of the second and third games in the series with darkness, the darkness of Diablo 2 and the hand-painted approach of Diablo 3. Heavy metal was also a big influence, the music genre. While the core game is not super different from previous ones, there was a lot of work done on it to refine the systems, especially when it came to the skill tree and the end game content, which seems to be expansive and reworked from the third game to give the player tons to do after they complete the main story and hit level 50. There's also like a gatekeepy kind of dungeon after you beat the main game. You've got to get through this uh, challenging dungeon to get into the post-game content. It looks like they just thought uh, really a lot about uh, how they give the post game to the player in a way that excites me because I never quite got that deep into Diablo 3. I played through it uh, a few times with my, I played through it with Lexi. I played through it with my friends and really enjoyed it, but I didn't get, I, I never really got scooped into that post game in a way that I have always wanted to. And I'm hoping to do that with Diablo 4. Uh, there is uh, uh, also, yeah, uh, the battle pass, like I said, whatever. I hope, I don't, I don't even, I've never, I don't think I've played a game with a battle pass that I'm like, hell yeah, love this battle pass situation. I don't even know if I paid for a battle pass though, now that I think, I think maybe I did it with um, Call of Duty once. Uh, with, I play, uh, I paid for one season of the Fortnite battle pass because it was like uh-huh. eight bucks. And I was like, you know what? I'm playing this game enough. I'm enjoying it. Why the fuck not? 
I got a couple of neat skins. I, you know, it was nice getting more rewards at the end of a playthrough. I, I feel like I got $8 worth of it, but then I never went back because it just didn't feel like necessary to enjoy the game. But that is, you know, in something like Diablo Immortal, like it was literally pay to play yeah. or even Diablo three with the auction house. Like if you wanted to go to PVP, like you needed higher numbers more than you needed, like expert yeah. clicking skills. And like you can if you can just pay for a bigger number than the other guys. God, there were like all those like click. Yeah, that just breaks it for me. You know, like it just breaks it. But what were you going to say? All these like YouTubers and Twitch streamers like dropping 100K in Diablo Immortal just because like as like streamers, they could market in their taxes as a business expense. Like and playing against non-streamers who are also dropping that much money just because they're like rich weirdos that like desperately want to relive the thrill of like being alive in 1997 again. I don't know. It's an entire world. I just but it I'm hurts my brain so excited for Diablo Four. Uh, I cannot believe this year in video games. It's such a good one. We're definitely going to be looking back on 2022 is like one of the best. 2022. What year is this? 23. Oh my god. We're gonna, I'm definitely going to be looking friend. back on 2023 as one of the strongest years in video games, and it looks like Diablo Four is going to be right up there on the list of this is why. So can't wait for it and love the story. Love the story, especially the making of uh, Diablo 1 and 2 because just a wild fucking intense approach. And I love the idea that like 15 people can sit in a room and just throw every cool idea into a pot and and implement most of them into Mm -hmm. a game and create one of the most groundbreaking, you know, legendary games in, in all of video game history is really cool. So yeah, that's our wrap. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Uh, you get weekly bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, pre-sales for our live tour, which we'll talk about in just a second. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. At $15 a month, you can join us for our Sunday study sessions where we'll get together and, let's say, play a bunch of Diablo. This past week, however, we did our production schedule. We do every few months where you can join us and help us come up with what topics we're going to throw in uh, to the actual show. Uh, So, yeah, there you go. $50 a month for that. And, uh, of course, the $5 tier, you get everything else. Uh, That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. I just mentioned it. Release the Butthole Cut Tour. Coming to a town near you. June, July, September, October dates. All at lastpodcastnetwork.com. That's lastpodcastnetwork.com. We're going all over the place, and we hope to see you there. Uh, Finally, for me, twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. I stream Monday through Friday. Twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. Ho, uh, check us out on that. Uh, and Jake, uh, follow me on Twitter at best Jake young. See all my thoughts and plops and get nice little, uh, tidbits of research that I'm discovering throughout the week. Instagram, same name at best Jake young. And, uh, Hey, I also do a little streamy thing. It's called the cartoon dumpster every Thursday, 7 PM Eastern. We watch some weird forgotten animated shows from the eighties, nineties, and two thousands. And uh, it's all through the guise of my little VTuber avatar, Puppet Jared. Just go to twitch.tv slash Puppet Jared or youtube.com slash Puppet Jared and join the fun Thursday, 7 p.m. If you like this show, you're going to like this stream. That's a okay. guarantee. That's right. I went Cajun with it. I went. I'm so confident. I Good did a Cajun Lord. Always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. Whizzing. 
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.